The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Bond yields are down again today, but now stocks are also turning lower. The Nasdaq's still the outperformer, but shouldn't lower yields be doing more to boost sentiment? We'll explore that and try to figure out why. Meanwhile, House Republicans are meeting behind closed doors to select a nominee for speaker. And Raymond James says conflict in the Middle East could materially raise pressure for the U.S. government to return to regular order. We'll get the very latest. And ahead in earnings exchange, we'll look ahead to Delta, Domino's and Walgreens all reporting before the bell tomorrow and all facing very different headwinds. First, let's get the market action, though. Speaking of headwinds, Dom Chu has the numbers. Dom? I think I am a headwind sometimes for these markets. But, I mean, to your point, Kelly, we started off with a solidly positive day, and now you can see we're mixed at best. I'll start with the larger cap, kind of broader S&P 500, which currently sits at 43.54, down about three points. That's not much, considering the fact that we were up 19 points at one point during the highs of the session and then down nine towards the low. So we're tilting towards that lower end of the trading range so far today. The Dow Industrial is down about one-tenth of 1%, 45 points, 33,693, the trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite still in the green, but only by a quarter of 1% of 28 points, 13,591. One key area for focus is in oil and gas. The Middle East war between Israel and Hamas and now Hezbollah perhaps creating some waves in Lebanon is starting to put a bit to oil prices. We've seen that over the last few days. They're pulling back just a little bit in trading so far today. You can see some of the uh, ice Brent crude futures down about 1% right there. The energy sector spider down about 1.5%. But Pioneer Natural Resources, the big story of the day, getting bought by ExxonMobil for roughly $253 a share in stock. It's just about $60 billion. Biggest acquisition for Exxon, by the way, since it bought mobile back in the late 1990s. So we'll keep an eye on that. And then also watch what's happening with, of course, the IPO of the day. That's Birkenstock. Not yet open for trading on the New York Stock Exchange right now. But what you can see right here is if you take a look at some of the moves Birkenstock shares right now, not yet trading, the offering price, again, was $46 a share. The indication from a bid-ask standpoint, as you can see, Kelly, between $39 and 41 cents. So we're not seeing the same kind of exuberance with this particular opening trade that we saw with Arm Holdings, that we saw with Instacart. A little bit more into the signs of what this means for the IPO market. We'll see when, of course, Kelly will bring you that opening trade as soon as it happens. I'll send things back over to you. Dom, it's unusual that it hasn't happened yet either. Even for the big IPOs, Arm, Instacart, they all opened in the 12 o'clock hour. And here we are still waiting as the indication has fallen throughout the morning. And it's not just that. I mean, the whole idea, Kelly, as as you know, and and many of the viewers and listeners out there know as well. It is to try to find that price that has the biggest clearing effect on the biggest number of shares, meaning you can try to match up 
the most buys and sells. If you couldn't get it done around the IPO price of 46, there might be this effort being made right now to get the biggest kind of opening trade possible out there at lower prices. So we'll see what happens. It's unusual to see such a change in sentiment from literally last night to right now. Dom, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Dom Chu. All right. Meantime, a divergence is shaping up in the Treasury market today, where the yields on the short end, like that two-year in green you see, are climbing. It's over 5 percent. But the long end is dropping back to levels not seen since late September. Ten-year yield around 461, five basis points or so above the intraday lows. Is this all just a technical move off of oversold levels, or is it because of the more dovish Fed speak we've heard this week? Just this morning, notoriously hawkish Fed Governor Chris Waller saying the Fed can watch and see what happens with rates. That follows Dallas Fed President Lori Logan, who said rising rates could do some of the work of cooling the economy for us. That same day earlier this week, the Fed's vice chair, Philip Jefferson, warned about balancing the risk of not having tightened enough against the risk of policy being too restrictive. And last night, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly dismissed the idea of 5% rates being the new normal, saying neutral is still probably anywhere between 2.5 and 3. All this while we learned this morning that producer prices did rise more than expected in September. So now what? Is there a real chance for a Fed pivot? Here to discuss, Greg Dacko is chief economist at EY Parthenon. Peter Bookvar is chief investment officer uh, at Bleakley Advisors and a CNBC contributor. And CNBC's Steve Leisman joins us as well. Welcome to everybody. Steve, uh, help us kind of sift through all of this. What's the noise? What's the signal here? Well, it's hard to figure out what's going on when a big shoe company is coming to market, uh, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) They are a shoe company, right? I'm just having a little trouble getting excited (laughs) about a shoe company, but I hope that's not the cutting edge of American innovation. In any event, um, what's happening here is the Fed doesn't quite want to pivot yet. It doesn't want to give up the ghost of potentially hiking again. But it doesn't feel like it's going to do it anytime soon. And I'll explain to you a couple things. Let's look at Waller. Waller in early September told me he thought the Fed could wait and see. And that was like, oh, okay, so you're not going to hike in September, but that November hike is still on, right? Now he's saying, maybe not. We still can wait and see, which kind of takes November off the table. And if you look at what happened today, the probabilities, we went down below 10% on the November hike. We're down, I don't know, 25, 26% on the December hike. So the market has taken that hike away. The Fed has not quite taken it away rhetorically. The only one who has definitively is uh, Bostic from Atlanta, who has said the Fed is, quote, sufficiently restrictive. That's the full stop phraseology right there. And I will tell you, every reporter in the press room, uh, everybody who looks at the minutes today is going to do a word search on the word sufficiently to see if it's in the minutes. And and we should explain that's why you're there with those nice flags behind you down in Washington waiting for those Fed minutes to be released in about an hour. Greg, uh, the minutes matter to you today. You know, kind of what do you think the market is doing here with this big pivot on the long end? Um, Is it fundamental? Is it technical? Well, I think what Steve mentioned is is absolutely correct. We are in an environment where the Fed has struggled really hard uh, to commit to its message of higher for longer. So now that it has achieved that, there is a desire to avoid markets pricing in rapid rate cuts over the course of the next year. I think what we're seeing in terms of economic data is that we are in a disinflationary environment. We are seeing ongoing signs that disinflation is proceeding, especially if you exclude some of the bumps in the road from higher energy prices. And that should allow the Fed to essentially maintain its policy rate in the restrictive range where it is right now. But there is going to be this optionality of still proceeding with further rate hikes if there is the need to do so, that will remain part of the Fed's communication going forward. 
Uh, Peter, what would you add to that? And what do you think is going on with the kind of global financial landscape more broadly right now? Well, we definitely pushed the overbought condition to an extreme in terms of yields, the dollar, and the price of oil when it dropped above $90. So all of them sort of relieved themselves together. Oil came in, the dollar sold off last week, and yields have, have dropped. I think it's very important that a lot of Fed members have also talked about financial conditions. Mm -hmm. Because you can't ignore the long end of the yield curve when you're trying to figure out where to put the Fed funds rate, because mortgage rates are directly tied to the 10-year. And mortgage rates and the housing market is probably the most sensitive part of the economy to uh, US, uh, Fed policy. So we've had a 100 basis point increase in the 30-year mortgage rate since the July rate hike. So the Fed had no choice but to acknowledge that and incorporate that in their modeling and how to figure out what to do with the November meeting. And I think that's why I think a lot of them backed off from committing to another hike. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment. Uh, one kind of swoosh downward we've seen in yield seems to be maybe because of the auction we just had in 10 years. Uh, Rick Santelli tracking those results for us out of the CME. Rick, talk to us. What's going on? Yes, the market always has it right, in my opinion. And you look at rates, they moved higher in the last few minutes because we had a lousy 10-year note auction. We had $35 billion of reopened 10s, hit the auction block, the yield 4.61. The problem, the one issue market was hovering around 4.59. Two basis points tail, that's a big collie tail there, not good. Takes a lot of points away. I gave a D as in dog, but... I could have given it worse grade. There was actually a couple of bright spots outside of pricing. And one of the bright spots was 20.9 on directs. The best since October of 22. But here's the flies in the ointment. 18.7% goes to dealers. That's the most they've taken down since these of 22. And remember, auctions are like buffet tables. If there's a lot of leftovers, that means that the investors didn't like the taste of the tenure at these levels, and who would not respect that considering the volatility? Now, if you look at what's going on with tens, you should also be very much on top of the notion of the differences going on in twos. Twos yesterday closed at a one-month, well, we haven't closed below 5% in a month, but yet, look at twos to tens spread over that month, the fact of the matter is long-dated treasuries, as everybody at that table is discussing, have dropped a lot more precipitously in a flight to quality, and it is reflected quite easily in the fact that just since Friday, we're 10 basis points more inverted. It was worse just to demonstrate that dynamic, and I'm not sure it's going to be going away anytime soon. The Fed, well, if the Fed's looking at the long end to gauge how they want to treat some of the upcoming meetings, Boy, geopolitics has certainly made it a messy proposition. Back to you. Yeah, everyone's nodding in agreement. Sorry for misspeaking. Yields are moving up as a result of what uh, Rick was just describing there, the collie tail on that auction. Peter, what were you saying? Yeah, I, I think Rick is right that the geopolitics complicates the messaging that they're trying to glean from the long end of the yield curve. In, in what sense? Because it seems like the, the major move has been people going back into treasuries, flight to safety, flight to quality, whatever you want to call it. Do you think that that's not legitimate, um, that it just has to do with the conflict that's erupted? No, I think, I think it is partly. But again, since their July meeting, uh, the long end of the yield curve, up 100 basis points, is, is something that regardless of why, it's going to have a dampening impact on the economy. Yeah, no, it's a great point, and that's why we've started to hear the Fed speak like you're talking about. Greg, what would you add to that, and what further commentary uh, is significant to you from Fed officials, whether in the minutes we're about to hear or, or in, their, in their remarks? I mean, if they're done, then what? 
Well, I think it's very important actually to understand the why, why we're seeing uh, this tightening in financial conditions. Uh, over uh, the early part of this week, I moderated the conversation with Lori Logan, the president of the Dallas Fed. And she highlighted that it was important to understand why long-term yields had risen. Is it inflation expectations? No, it doesn't seem like it. Is it the sentiment that the economy is more resilient and more inflationary? That, again, doesn't seem to be the case. Is it a higher neutral rate? Potentially, but that's not a big factor. Then it comes down to the term premium. Is it the fact that we're running larger deficits, exactly. less demand for bonds or less reliable demand for bonds, and potentially more inflation volatility in this complex geopolitical framework? I think that's the case, and that would be more reason for the Fed to essentially hold steady where it is right now. All right, perfect place to leave it. We have some more uh, breaking news on the House Speaker. Steve, we'll come back in just a moment if that's okay. Greg Dotko, Peter Bookvar, thank you both. Uh, let's bring in Emily Wilkins. Emily, looks like, uh, do we have a candidate? Kelly, we do have a candidate. Steve Scalise has just hit the majority of the House Republicans. They have voted for him to be the nominee on the House floor for a speaker. Now, this does not mean that anything is done yet. Scalise has a long road in front of him at this point. Now, he won the vote among House Republicans 113 to 99. That means there was a lot of support in the room for Jim Jordan. And we're hearing some of those members say that they will continue to vote for Jordan now that this is going to leave the closed room session and actually go to the House floor for that vote. And if you remember back in January, we saw that roll call. That's what we're about to go into again. And it's just not clear at this point how long it's going to take for Republicans to really coalesce behind Scalise. He's going to need 217. That's the magic number. And we were talking today with a couple of lawmakers, including Ralph Norman, who said, look, Republicans need to be unified. We need to act together. Otherwise, that doesn't send a good signal. Listen to what he told me. You know, it doesn't sound here like we, we have that sound right now. But basically what he said is that Americans are tired of chaos. And what they need to do at this point is they need to see a government that's actually working and unified. So at this point, it's not clear how many rounds we could see for a speaker on the floor. But we do know at this point that Steve Scalise is going to be the nominee for Republicans. And of course, Democrats are going to remain united around their leader, Hakeem Jeffries. And Emily, just remind us when the vote by the entire House is for the speakership. So we don't know exactly when, but that could happen as soon as today. Republicans decided that they just wanted a simple majority to go forward. They didn't want to get 217 behind closed doors. And so really, if Republicans want to move quickly, we could see a vote on the House floor in within the hour. All right. Again, they need, I think, 200. Is it 221 or so? And they... 217. 217. Yeah, the, math, the math is a little crazy, but it's 217. Of the 221. Okay, got it. Emily, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our Emily Wilkins with the very latest. And for more on these developments, I'm joined by Ed Mills now. He's Washington policy analyst at Raymond James. Ed, it's good to bring you in. And uh, Scalise, uh, what, what more detail are you looking for here, and, and where do we go from here? Well, 113 is not 217. So what I'm looking for here is how does he... Uh, chip into the 99 members who voted for Jim Jordan? Uh, is there a deal to be had? Um, there is an opening in House leadership if Scalise becomes the speaker. You have a majority leader slot open. Is that something you give to Jim Jordan? Uh, is that moving up others like Tom Emmer into the majority leader spot and doing that? Ultimately, for the markets, which we're always focused, obviously, on, Kelly. Mm -hmm. um, if it is Steve Scalise, he has already told his caucus that we most likely need a continuing resolution 
come November, that's a positive for the markets. He's more likely to bring forward some defense spending for Israel, Ukraine, um, and probably with that, some border funding as well. So if he can get through the main vote and become speaker, you think there's slightly lower odds of a government shutdown? I do, because he's told the caucus that they need to have another continuing resolution. There is no way to get the 12 appropriations bills through both the House and the Senate before November 17th. One thing that I've really been focusing and telling folks at Raymond James to watch is that on November 15th, President Biden is supposed to sit down with General Secretary Xi of China. Do we want to have this internal squabble, especially with the geopolitical risk on the world stage? as those two leaders are meeting, that could be a part of the reason why they would want to punt beyond November 17th, maybe have this fight once again in December. Although what about some of the more conservative uh, parts of his, yeah, the same guests who I saw who were part of ousting McCarthy, what part of their frustration was we keep doing these CRs and they're not satisfied with that. And so, you know, if they know that that's what Scalise intends to do, then might they prevent him from becoming speaker? Yeah, Kelly, so I think if it goes on the floor more than three or four rounds, that's when we have a conversation about, is there another candidate that emerges? Is it back to a Speaker McCarthy? Do they choose someone else, like the temporary Speaker Patrick McHenry? Do they draft someone? I think that would be a market positive because the more this smaller group does not allow you to do anything, the more I think that in the long term might lose power. Um, and so it is, a uh, market neutral, if it is Scalise, maybe actually surprisingly a potential market positive, Kelly, if they end up going around the current two. And it would, I'm trying to just connect those dots one more time. It would be a market positive if we see some drama and uncertainty around the speakership. Why exactly? Because of what the outcome would be. If you get a speaker who does not necessarily want this, they probably are more in position to negotiate from a period of strength rather than what we saw earlier with McCarthy. Do you remove the motion uh, to vacate? Is there a potential deal with Democrats? Near term, none of this is good. All of this is dysfunction. Um, but I'd say if it's Scalise, less likely government shutdown, not guaranteed, just you know, on the margin, uh, or if they go outside this group, do we have the fight taken out of this group near term for those medium and longer term victories? That's actually what we saw in January, where a lot of fighting in that early period, and then McCarthy was able to get bipartisan bills to the floor, ultimately cost him his speakership. But from a market perspective, during the first half of this year, pretty decent for the market. That's fascinating to think through. One quick final question, Ed, what do you think about timing for this full House vote now? Um, I think it's going to be at least into tomorrow. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the House not to leave for the weekend before they get done. Kelly, I always talk to you about deadlines. Mm -hmm. uh, members of Congress do want to go home. Um, that could be a forcing mechanism. Uh, so, you know, it easily could spill beyond. But these events and, and if we do get another front uh, in this war in Israel, that will only add to the pressure to wrap this up sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Ed, thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Thank Ed you, Mills with Raymond James. Let's turn back to the markets where my next guest says he's been pricing in risk all year. The Israel-Hamas war is even more reason to stay defensive. And we can see what he thinks of uh, what's going on in Washington as well. Michael Cugino is portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. Michael, welcome to you. Good afternoon, Kelly. So, you know, the real, the real thing I was going to ask you, when you say stay defensive, I'm not sure anyone would quibble with that. But we sort of ask, well, what do you mean by defensive? 
right? Staples, dividend stocks, utilities. These have been some of the hardest hit parts of the market. Yeah, I mean, we're defensive in a number of areas, but we also offset that with some growth potential, too. So uh, I think defensive would be a broader strategy of diversification, including names in the equity market that would generally be considered defensive. We like defense names, for example. Um, we like energy. We like commodities. We like natural resources. Um, those are generally considered on a more defensive side. But we do pair that with more aggressive technology, biotech, and, and some financials. So it's not a, you know, a chicken little sky is falling kind of a position. And then other investments that would be considered defensive, although we don't necessarily see them that way, but, but I understand the argument, would be exposure to precious metals like gold and silver. Um, and yeah. in our case, short-duration, high-quality corporate bonds and treasuries. Would you be a buyer of Exxon today on the 5% decline on the Pioneer deal? Uh, we own it, and uh, we have a healthy position, so not necessarily, but as an investor, I like the transaction. Um, I think it's an area where, over time, you're going to see uh, synergies and, and accretive to earnings. It gives them a stronger position in the Permian. The Exxon itself, with or without a Pioneer, is a good dividend payer. Uh, we think energy prices are going to remain high going forward. So for total return investor, um, trading at a below market multiple, it's an interesting it's an interesting position. I don't know if you want to add any thoughts on what's going on in Washington and the extent to which you think that will affect the markets or not. Well, anything that goes on in Washington impacts the markets. And I think sometimes people underappreciate that. Hmm. Um, you know, with respect to the previous conversation in the House, I, I think uh, they this could turn from a ho-hum partisan kind of in the news headline thing to something negative if they can't get the House in order, so to speak, and get a speaker and move forward. Um, just because in the last week or so, uh, we've got more threats to the United States. And I think the, intramur the intramural squabbles, the public has less appetite for that when you have other things that are bigger that need attention. And whether it's defense, whether it's, and, you know, there's a lot of geopolitical risk out there, which is one reason it's to be somewhat defensive in terms of investments. But when you have that, when you have big budgetary um, decisions to make in, that may impact spending and defense spending, for example, right. they need to get their house in order and get on it. Well, to that point, you like Lockheed Martin. Obviously, that a lot of the defense names are up 4 or 5% this week. But uh, is it such a, a sure thing that Washington's going to rally here and support more defense spending on a number of different fronts globally? No, not at all. And that's what key, continues to create volatility. And, um, and that's why investors need to pay attention to what goes on there and adjust their portfolios accordingly. But you'd still be an owner of Lockheed despite that? Yeah, because I think in the long term, Lockheed pays a reasonable dividend. It's not that expensive. I do think the United States over time is going to have to increase defense spending. You know, when you, when you look at the geopolitical world, um, you've got hot spots in three major areas right now, whether it's the, the Middle East, whether it's Russia, Ukraine and NATO, or whether it's China and Taiwan. And you need to have the resources and liquidity to fund our national interest in those three areas, potentially. And that involves a lot more defense spending. And I, and I think that is a big decision for Washington going forward. Where you know we're not the United States is not fiscally as strong financially mm -hmm. as it was. We've got a lot more debt, thirty something trillion right now, uh, and so we financially we're weaker. 
And uh, we've got to start figuring out how we're going to spend our resources better. Yeah. $816 billion, and we just showed the defense budget. I think interest costs this year are seen around 650 so it's, it's catching up fast. Michael, thank you. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Michael Cugino, we appreciate your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Let's turn now to the mortgage impact of fluctuating rates. You heard Peter Bookvar talk about its importance a moment ago, but even as the 30-year mortgage hits its highest level since 2000, homebuyers are trying to find more ways to get around it. Let's bring in Diana Olick with those details. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, we saw a really interesting dynamic last week in the mortgage applications data. The rate on the popular 30-year fixed mortgage rose sharply, but the rate on adjustable rate loans fell. As a result, arm demand spiked. Take a look. The average rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage rose to the highest level since 2000 last week to 7.67% from 7.53%. That's for loans with a 20% down payment. But the average contract rate for five-in-one arms decreased decreased to 6.33% from 6.49. Now, arms usually offer much lower rates because they have shorter fixed terms, but the difference between arm rates and the 30-year fix has been unusually narrow recently. Last week, though, it widened. So as a result, applications to refinance a home loan inched up 0.3% from the previous week, still down 9% from a year ago. And applications for a mortgage to purchase a home rose 1% for the week, still 19% lower than the same week one year ago. Now, I want to note that rates started this week much lower as investors headed into the relative safety of bonds due to the news out of Israel. But again, buyers looking for any way to reduce that monthly payment going into the more risky arm space. Kelly. Right. Although their you know, ability to do so is somewhat limited. Um, and those who are taking out arms face the, the prospect of, of a nasty surprise a few years down the road. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can get a five, seven or a 10 year arm, so it's not that risky and you are underwritten for the full extent of the loan. So they're nothing like they were back, you know, 20 years ago, which caused all those problems in the Great Recession. But again, buyers are looking for any way to get into an incredibly pricey housing market. And so that share is now up at 9% of all applications. Just a year ago, it was 3% of applications because why take the risk when rates were so much lower? Indeed. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. And that's why some say the lags in the housing market might be even longer than appreciated. Uh, but that's for another time. Birkenstock priced at $46 a share last night for its IPO, just around that mid the midpoint of that $44 to $49 range for a tentative valuation of about $8.5 billion. But the indication price for the open has steadily declined today. Let's talk more about it. Jeff Kilberg is here. He's KKM's financial, KKM Financial's founder and CEO. Leslie Picker is standing by down at the New York Stock Exchange as well. Leslie, I, I'm not, am I mistaken? It's still not open? Sorry, Kelly. Uh, it's We're getting much closer to the open, hearing indications coming in at a much narrower range. I just heard 40.75 to 41. So that's only a 25 cent difference. Uh, they've got about 2 million shares paired, so a little less than 10 percent. But to your point, this one pricing toward the middle of the range, looking like it's going to trade lower as it opens for trading today. Uh, we've seen kind of a, a mixed reaction of recent companies that have gone public uh, uh, not a resounding demand for some of the, the recent deals that we saw in September. Some of that plays a role. Valuation here plays a role as well in talking to investors who, uh, you know, had looked at this one perhaps. It came out a little hotter than many were anticipating, at least the, the whisper numbers that had been floated out there in, in either the media or in the investor circles. And so all of those things combined with some of the macro factors made it a, a, a tough sell, um, you know, at least at these levels, even at the midpoint of the range they had been marketing. So looks to be about a 12 percent uh, decline if these indications are indeed where 
they open for trading. But again, that narrowing of the range would suggest that that is what appears to be the case, Cal. Leslie, thank you so much. Stand by for just a moment. Jeff, let's talk a little bit about this and why we might be seeing this take place. It had been kind of a, a ho-hum IPO up until this point where suddenly it's more of a head-scratcher. Uh, for what it's worth, Aswat Demodoran ran through his valuation last week for Birkenstock and said, OK, you know, if the stock drops below 40, I would be a buyer. He was using the symbol euros, but maybe it's uh, kind of apples to apples here. So, you know, it's not like I've seen a lot of people out there saying this is crazy overvalued. Interesting wrinkle as well. Take a listen to what the CEO said this morning when asked about the proceeds, which will largely be used to pay down debt. Listen. We fell in love with our um, partners uh, at Carrotton. After the first night, you found out they didn't have the money to pay us cash. You know, So that's why we have debt. You know, We never produce any debt on our side. So the debt we're having uh, um, is, is coming purely from this acquisition time. And we will, we will um, pay back, pay uh, back a serious, yes, serious amount of this because actually we don't need money to drive the business because whatever we do generates money. We have a very cash-rich company. We have uh, a few million sitting in our bank accounts. And indeed, uh, Jeff, they also, listen, Crocs, which you could call its nearest uh, publicly traded competitor, which went public all the way back in 2006, by the way. Crocs down 21% year to date. Maybe that's not helping. What do you make of it? Well, I think it's disappointing, Kelly. And at the end of the day, Birkenstock is a 250-year-old company. So the investment bankers should have had a better measuring stick. This isn't some tech company that's negative EBITDA. This is an actual company that has been making money for quite some time. So to see it down 12%, I think that speaks louder to the IPO market, which I know it's still unfreezing. It's kind of like Austin Power trying to find his mojo. But here we are you know, with some big monies coming out. And I know when we compare it to 2021, it pales in comparison, right? That was one of the biggest years. We saw $80 billion raised on a market cap of about $315 billion and over 200 deals. So here we are just trying to get over $9, $10 billion in raising money in the small amount of deals for 2023. But I really think this is going to hinder the appetite. It's going to push some of the bigger IPOs from Q4 out to Q1 next year. And yes, we know the headwinds here. The investment bankers should have measured all this. We know higher interest rates. We understand the appetite is not there like it used to be. But this should have priced better, Kelly, bottom line. It's also, you know, I was reading through some commentary from the weekend, Michael Hartnett at Bank of America pointing out, we're seeing some of these uh, bifurcations in the market where you have retail stocks pricing in a hard landing, uh, but other parts of the market, not necessarily. And is it just unfortunate timing that Burke is, is more or less uh, just a retail name for a very challenged space right now? Yeah, I think that's a great point. But on the flip side, look at Arm. Why is Arm down 12% since his IPO, right? That's a, you know, you talk about the British uh, chip maker for the phones, that, that should be moving higher. So I think the overall, it, this is normal, and I don't think we should be too alarmed. I'm not trying to press too hard on the Birkenstock being down 12%, but I think this is just part of the unthawing process because we saw you know, the door shut on IPOs in 2022. So I think it's going to be okay. We're going to see consumers still have an appetite. But right now, there is a lot of uncertainty with the Fed policy, which is absolutely impactful on IPO investor appetite. They even had a Barbie effect, Leslie. You think, you know, come on. Like, they, they, they Burks, I think, were in the They've only been, uh, Al Catterton did the buyout a couple of years ago, yep. around 4 billion euros. So if it goes public at 7 or 8, it's still not a disaster from that point of view. And Crocs is only a 5.5 billion market cap.
Yeah, you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, returns of about 80% upside from just two years ago, especially from 2021 to today. Uh, so this would absolutely be a win for L. Catterton. Now, they're still going to hold about 83% of the company when it goes public. But we spoke with the managing partner there um, who ran this deal, who led this deal, had a close relationship with the company, has a close relationship, said that their intention is to still hold about 68% for the foreseeable future. So this is still going to be a, a significant partnership for them and, and almost a two-handle or a 2x return on uh, this investment made just a little over two years ago. Um, you know, and their perspective is basically, because I asked him, you know, why now? It's only been two years and you seem pretty steadfast in getting this thing public given the prospect for a government shutdown that almost derailed your roadshow, the events in the Middle East over the weekend and beyond that created this layer of uncertainty in the markets. And still you moved forward. And he basically said, look, good companies can get out whenever, and they believe in the, the long-standing value of this brand, which dates back 250 years. Jeff, we'll also be watching, like you said, for um, the, the inevitable kind of, what will this mean for the IPO pipeline? Um, whether or not it's just a case of, look, it's, it's a German company, it's a private equity backer, it's a retail, you know, I think most of the stuff in the pipeline is, is not that. No, that's right. But at the end of the day, I think investors are just become more sophisticated. So don't be surprised, Kelly, if you see some big institutions laying in the weeds as they're pricing this. You could see Birkenstock trade back over $50. There's so much volatility on this initial emotion. So I wouldn't discount the fact. But at the end of the day, I think you have to look at a company very differently, a very different lens than some type of tech company coming out later in the year. No, fair enough. And I was actually going to ask if you think, you know, often it can be the case that a more muted IPO is a better IPO because you don't want to buy something as the as the broad public investor, once it's already up, you know, 40 percent from the IPO price. Um, but to your point, Jeff, it's not like the more muted openings we've seen for Arm and Instacart have ended up being all that great either. Leslie, uh, I'm hearing some bells over there. What's going on? Are we open? We are officially open, currently around 4160, down about 10% at the open. And you bring up a good point, Kelly, is kind of do you want to see a huge pop on day one and risk that momentum turning sour or more of a muted open and seeing declines on the open? What happens psychologically there? I mean, the challenge is this isn't a huge, huge decline by any stroke of the, the, the word, but, you know, a decline of 10% means those that bought in about a billion dollars worth of stock that was excluding the... Uh, cornerstone investors. There were three cornerstone investors in this deal. They're now looking at losses of 10%. What does that mean for their future appetite to buy IPOs? What does that say about the overall demand for IPOs at this point in time? And you were talking about the private equity pipeline. This is a private equity backed IPO, very quintessential sponsor backed deal. So what does that mean for all of those portfolio companies that are uh, you know, looking for exits, looking for the opportunity? Does this signal to them that the IPO market is open and, and looking for business? I, I wouldn't say that this is a resounding yes to that answer. Absolutely. Very well said. It looks like they're marking 41 as the open price, 46, of course, last night, the IPO price. And, and finally, Leslie, what is it next in the pipeline? <laughs> it's a good question. We don't have any major IPOs left on the docket for this year. It takes about a month for those things to become public, to flip their S1 or F1. This is a foreign filer, so it files an F1. Uh, for those to flip public, work their way, you know, have that public for about two weeks before launching, say, a week and a half roadshow and going public. So it takes about a month of time for that to happen. We don't have much in the public uh, pipeline right now, at least of the billion-dollar-plus deals like we're seeing today. So this is definitely a harbinger, potentially, of, you know, the rest of the year. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's going to be something that has people just running to, to go public at this point in time. That said, 
every company has its own needs. Every company, you know, may look to the market in a different way. So yeah. uh, we'll see what happens in the in the remainder of the year. I'm thinking about it as well ahead of bank earnings with some of those big market making firms that had seen yes. an increase in uh, increase in activity. Jeff, I just want to point out to viewers as well: the Dow's down 125 points, the Nasdaq has turned negative. I don't know what's the tail and what's the dog here, but you know, kind of a. a a mediocre IPO probably doesn't help on a day like this. What do you think is driving sentiment? You no, know, I think it's sentiment's uncertainty, what's going on in the Middle East. I think investors are really at this moment in time looking at the S&P 500 up about 12% year to date, better than expected. As we go into earnings season, they're looking for the next catalyst. They're looking for some good news. As right now, we've seen rates relent, but I don't know if rates have relented for all the right reasons. So I think investors are in a little bit of, uh, of a holding pattern, and I think this IPO speaks volumes to that. But don't be surprised if you see all the grunge investors come out and buy some Birkenstock here, and you see this uh, Birkenstock BIRK move a little higher. All right. Well, I'll get out, though. Those Arizonas and solidarity. You know, they never, I, my feet always hurt too much wearing them. Anyway, thank I you both. Them. Yeah. <laughs> so we're pent up demand. Leslie Picker and Jeff will see you a little bit later on this hour. We really appreciate it. Coming up, Delta is kicking off airline earnings tomorrow as Wall Street has been slashing estimates across the board due to rising fuel costs. We'll look at how to trade it in earnings exchange. As we head to break, here's a quick check on markets. I just mentioned we have stocks at session lows now. Even the Nasdaq has turned negative. Russell's 2000s, the worst performer, down three quarters of 1%. The 10-year note popped a bit, 10-year yield, I should say, after the poor auction top of the hour that Rick Santelli told us about, hanging in there around 461 at the moment, and that could have helped put some downward pressure back on stocks. We're back after this. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The Palestinian Ministry of Health reported that 1,100 people have now been killed in Gaza. Around 5,300 Gaza citizens were also reported injured. Earlier today, the ministry said the death toll in the West Bank stood at 23 with 130 injured. Gaza is now in the dark after the sole power plant there ran out of fuel. A spokesperson for Gaza's power distribution company said Gaza will halt operations to basic services, hospitals, sewage and water in the coming hours. Israel cut off the electricity supply starting on Saturday. 
And two congressional officials telling NBC News the Biden administration plans to request an aid package for Israel that will include funding for Ukraine and Taiwan. Those officials saying the request for supplemental funding is aimed at addressing the strain on Pentagon stockpiles from providing support to the three countries. The sources say the funds would be used to build more weapons. Kelly, back to you. Wow. Tyler, thank you very much. I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Between the Israel-Hamas war, Ukraine, and rising tensions with China, my next guest warned there will be further ramifications from the sense that the world is slipping into disarray and it will chill American investment across the globe. Joining me now, Charles Kupchin is senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Chad Sweet is co-founder and CEO of the Chertoff Group. Wonderful to have you both here. Charles, I'll start with you. And it's, it's not just me. I mean, there is this sense of, of disarray uh, spreading. Well, we have building tension with China over Taiwan. The war in Ukraine rages on with the offensive not having gone as well as many had hoped for. And now all of a sudden we've got a major war in Israel on a scale that we haven't seen in in decades. And I think this is a sign that we are headed into the post-post-Cold War era. Uh, there is a diffusing distribution of power in the world, the digital age, is turning everything upside down. And so I think we really are seeing uh, the beginning of what is probably going to be a turbulent moment in international politics that could last quite some time. Chad, how does this translate into companies who you know, may have had leaders who rose to power on the idea of globalism, on uh, being large multinationals or certainly having you know, broad operations across the globe? Does that change now? I think it doesn't, um, but it does highlight the need for risk management. And I think we just went through the pandemic. A lot of the clients at the Chertoff Group, we've helped them map out their supply chains uh, to make those more resilient. Uh, I think as Charles just said, you know, the world's certainly not becoming a safer place. And a lot of the infrastructure and capabilities that were put in place to deal with the disruption of the pandemic are now being utilized uh, to, to look at what can be happening on the cascading effects from the Middle East. And talk a little bit more about that. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, right now, if you look at sort of the three primary things, most of our clients, we've helped them to, if they had personnel in a region, they've uh, looked to exfiltrate them. Unfortunately, there's some that are still stranded there and we're working to help them get out. The second is um, assets. If you step back and look at business continuity in the same way the pandemic disrupted operations right now, there are folks that have supply chains, like you said, global companies that cross that region and you have to look at the implications around oil and the disruption there. And uh, lastly, with respect to cyber, which is knows no boundaries, is obviously an area where the Iranians have demonstrated repeatedly that they will use that as a tool. And that is something that has impacted uh, U.S. corporations uh, and others globally. And the final point we just touched on was supply chain, where I do think there's an increasing ability uh, of all major corporations to look at resiliency and their supply chain and having mapped that out, they're now refreshed. The responsible actors are prudently refreshing that. One more, I mean, do you see a change? I see that you think Israel is going to be a potentially difficult place for companies to put further investment right now. Have you seen that also with Ukraine? We've seen all the companies who've had to pull out of Russia. Obviously, there's major questions about what to do about China at this point. How would you describe the nature and, and direction of American investment dollars in 2023 versus maybe 2013? Well, we uh, at the Chertoff Group invest uh, as well as consult in security. And the two world leaders in that space are the United States and Israel. And prior to this, I think there was a, uh, a feeling because of the strong Israeli uh, security 
domestic efforts coupled with the Iron Dome, that there was a perception of relative security. And unfortunately, the events that have happened in the last few days have, have destroyed that perception. I think it's going to take many uh, years for that to, to be restored. In the in the short term, what you're going to see is there's a tremendous amount of innovation and capability that's in Israel that I think uh, many of us will help support and will, uh, in some cases, help them to find a home here in the United States until that settles down. So mm. be on the lookout there. And then overall, for your viewers, I do think the overall defense sector is someplace where you'll see uh, a lot of safe haven investments going towards. Uh, we've already seen in the last few days, the defense narrowspace ETF is up uh, to the tune of about 6% or almost $30 billion. Right. Charles, what would you add to that? I mean, is there anything we're missing where, you know, things suddenly settle back down into a, you know, the end of history once again? Well, I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. My guess is that the, uh, the situation is going to get bumpier in Israel. Obviously, we're now focused very much on Israel-Gaza, but the border with Syria and Lebanon is a dangerous place. A lot of Iranian-backed Hezbollah fighters. We don't know whether the West Bank will remain calm. We don't know whether we may see the return of fighting between Israeli Jews and, and Israeli Arabs. I think at the broader global level, we're still in a scenario in which the main uh, word that comes to mind is de-risking. Right. We are we're trying to redirect our supply chains. We're telling the Chinese we're not going to let them get access to high end semiconductors. We've unplugged Russia from the Western economy and they've re rejiggered their own trade routes and their economy is doing OK. I think the six million dollar question is, is this geopolitical tension that we see going to build? And if so, will de-risking become deglobalization? Are we going to head toward a global economy that looks more like the fragmented global economy of the Cold War right. rather than the integrated global economy of the post-Cold War era? I don't think we're headed there, but clearly we're, we're in a very different environment. And here in the United States, industrial policy, protectionism, the Inflation Reduction Act, these are moves that I think are spooking many other countries that are saying, hey, what about the World Trade Organization? Hey, what about America leading the next phase of global trade liberalization? So we really are, I think, entering uncharted waters in terms of where the global economy is headed. And I know a lot of economists who think we might be trading some near-term GDP gains for maybe long-term productivity and an even rising standard of living as a result of, of all of this. So big implications, gentlemen. We'll continue to follow them. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Charles Kupchin and Chad Sweet. Let's get a quick check on the markets where all three averages have given up earlier gains now. The Nasdaq was the last to turn negative, even as yields were falling earlier today. The 10-year touching lows not seen since late September before picking up after that week Treasury auction top of the hour. Let's take a check on Birkenstock as well. It opened for trade at $41 a share, five bucks below the IPO price. Uh, it's down. That's what that 11% is referencing. Let's get over to Deirdre Bosa now, taking a look at its direct-to-consumer business and the state of that approach more widely, Deirdre, for today's Tech Check. Welcome. So the direct-to-consumer retail business model that has certainly fallen out of favor with investors. If you take a look at some of 
the golden companies, the darlings of that age of just a few years ago. There's Allbirds, there's Blue Apron, there's Warby Parker, Smile Direct Club, Casper, Hims and Hers, etc., etc. Um, they, many of them, had really successful IPOs, but lost momentum because it turns out that their model didn't work very well direct to consumer. But in fact, for Birkenstock. You would call it Birkenstock's secret sauce. And Birkenstock has a very different way of doing it. But if you look at the channel shift over the last few years, direct-to-consumer made up less than 20% just four years ago. Today or last year, it makes up nearly 50%. So there's been a huge shift. But the key here, Kelly, is that Birkenstock has used a combination of wholesalers and D2C to create this engineered distribution model. What this does is it essentially uses both of these methods of selling their products, wholesale and D2C, to create scarcity. So that's very different than what sort of the last class of D2C companies did. They were ubiquitous, they were everywhere, and they used advertising to reach consumers and just sell as much as possible. And then that was kind of flipped on its head when Apple's new privacy policy came into place and left them behind. Birkenstock, though, as I said, is using a very different model. So it's interesting to see if this one will have more success. So far, it certainly has. And it's a lot more profitable, of course, as well. Yes. And it's got the name recognition. You know, it's at the size where usually once they can achieve this, these financials and have that, they can achieve liftoff. Uh, we'll see after the dust settles from today. Deirdre, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, Delta lowered Q3 guidance back in September. Domino's has beaten top-line estimates in only seven of the past 20 quarters. And Walgreens has a new CEO. Will he be able to turn around its healthcare services business? We'll find out next in Earnings Exchange. We're back right after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back. We've got a crop of earnings before the bell tomorrow, so we'll get you the trades into the prints. We're talking about Delta, Walgreens, and Domino's in today's earnings exchange. And here with our trades, we welcome back Jeff Kilberg, KKM's financial. A fine, I did that last time too, Jeff. You think I'd KKM financial founder and CEO? You're good. Thank you. Stand by as we talk some Delta. It's been in steady descent since July, down 13% in September alone. B of A writing that pricing across the industry has been weak and costs for planes, fuel and maintenance have all risen. And recent flight cancellations to Israel are only worsening the outlook. You think they can pull out of this? Would you be a buyer here, Jeff? Uh, I am a buyer here. And yes, it has been Mayday, Mayday for all the airlines. But if you look at Delta, I believe Delta is an essential name. We actually own in the Essential 40 portfolio. It's twice the size of United. It's three times the size of American Airlines. And I think if you look at the last three months, it's absolutely been in a free-for-all. You're right, down about 25%, still up about 9% year to date. But when I travel, going to see advisory groups or family offices across the country, Kelly, I still see just absolutely not one single available seat on the airline. So I think you will see demand come back. But yes, the overarching theme is that we are questioning the consumer, the consumer appetite inside of all this high inflation, inside of the high uh, gasoline costs that you talked about. But I think it has the opportunity to go back up to $41. That's a pretty substantial move, about 15% higher. But that lines up really well with the 50-day moving average. So I think technically, Kelly, Delta is oversold. And I think I want to be a buyer and I am an owner.
All right, 35 right now. We'll hear from them in the morning. We'll also hear from uh, Delta CEO Ed Bastian in a CNBC exclusive talking earnings around 7 a.m. Eastern time. We'll move on to Domino's now, which has given up much of its summer rally with a 9% slide last week. It's holding on to less than a 3% gain this year. They're hoping to entice customers with that Uber Eats partnership and a more generous new loyalty program. Steeple says the promotions should increase buying frequency and losses, they say, should be partly offset by, among other things, lower cheese costs. So, Domino's, the stock of the 2010s, would you be buying it here, Jeff? I'm not a buyer, but obviously I'm a consumer and eater of many pizzas. Uh, but nonetheless, if you look at this, I just don't want to own Domino's. Any metric you look at it, Kelly, a year to date, one year, three year, five year, it's underperformed. I actually own Chipotle instead of it. And if you look year to date, that's about a 35, 38% difference. And I just think it's in a lower valuation for a reason. You look at the forward PE, the lower end of its range on a historic five year perspective, that is for a reason. So until I see some type of catalyst, I want to be a seller here of Domino's despite the fact that I am a pizza lover. All right, you should do your own Portna. You should just go around and taste pizzas and rate them, and you know, we'll make that a oh, thing. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> Who wouldn't want that job? All right, uh, finally to Walgreens, which has lost a CEO, a CFO, and 25% in the past three months. As Mizuho says, they're looking to rebalance their retail and healthcare arms. Bouncing slightly today on the announcement of that new incoming CEO, Tim Wentworth. He's the former CEO of Express Scripts, largest PBM or pharmacy benefits manager before it was bought by Cigna. You like Wentworth if I'm not mistaken. So would you buy the stock here on a turnaround? Yeah, I mean, look, it's 77% off its all-time high. So you think I you know, have to question my buy rating on this. But Tim Wentworth, that's like signing Tom Brady. He was at Pepsi. He was at Mary Kay. He obviously Express Scripts. He is absolute stud. So I think you're seeing some investor appetite. But if you want to be careful, if you want to approach this long with options, you can sell puts here. You can also buy upside calls if you're not comfortable buying. But I think at $22, when you look at historical valuation, the Ford PE ratio of Walgreens has been about from five and a half up to nearly 12 over the last five years. That's the average. Right now, it's trading at a six times Ford PE. I think from a value, a discount perspective, I think it's on the bottom. I want to be a buyer here, but be very careful with this. But Tim Wentworth, he's a stud. All right. So we'll triple that we'll hear from a trifecta in the morning. Uh, real quickly, Jeff, your two cents on kind of bond yields at this point. We did see them touch some lows earlier in the session, uh, move a little bit higher. You think that's what's putting pressure on the market? You know, we talked about yields just about a week ago, and I was a believer when it was trading 4.85 in the 10-year note that we would see 4% before 5%. True. Pretty bold and lonely call. The catalyst was we had no idea that we would see the atrocities over in the Middle East to move those yields lower. But I think you're seeing a lot of people cover their trades. Look at Bill Ackman. He talked about it going to 5%. It's the beauty of a big hedge fund manager covering their position. That was a great trade for Bill Ackman and many institutions. So I think you saw an overcrowded trade as people were selling the futures, which is is obviously inversely related to the yields going higher. So I think the 10-year note, once we see some dust settle, not just geopolitically, but just in the trading clear, I think you'll see it back under 4.5%. Oh, wow. All right, Jeff, we appreciate it. Thanks for all your time today. It's good to have you. Thank you, Kelly. Jeff Kilberg with KKM Financial. Before we go, don't miss CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit tomorrow. I'll be there in the morning interviewing former SEC Chair Jay Clayton. Uh, we're going to try to run through all the hot button issues. You can sign up by scanning the QR code on your screen or going to CNBCEvents.com, and I will see you there. That does it for The Exchange. Next on Power Lunch, we're moments away from more insights from the Fed's last policy meeting. I know Tyler's anxiously awaiting the Fed minutes. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Extra, give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.